Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with storyteller, speaker, and filmmaker Dante Woods Spikes. We talked about how community moments can happen in Columbus, being a young black man in Columbus, who should have a seat at the table when addressing the challenges that we face, and the importance of being present with your friends and family. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com, the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Dante Wood Spikes, speaker, storyteller, and filmmaker. Dante, how are you? I'm all right. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, full disclosure, if there's any delay in Dante answering a question, he's uh, messing with his camera, getting everything documented, everything framed up here. We ready. Good. Dante, we're sitting down here on the occasion of your upcoming documentary, His Last Words. First of all, give me sort of the high-level 10,000-foot view. Who are you? What, and tell us about your work. Well... To be 100% honest, I feel like a lot of things that happened for me was completely unexpected. Okay. I just started off as a person that loved to do work in the community. And unexpectedly, the right people saw what I was doing. I just started volunteering at a church. Okay. I went from volunteering at a church to getting a job at the community center. Okay. I went from working at the community center to also going to college at Columbus State. Mm-hmm. Then I went from Columbus State to being interviewed in a newspaper. So it was like this domino effect of things that just kept happening back to back to back. And luckily, all of the right people that saw me said, you know what? I have something else that I would like you to be a part of. Okay. And you don't always get to come across people that are invested in your vision and mm-hmm. what it is you want to do. Sometimes people would like to, to use you. But luckily, I have not had that situation happen. And I'm pretty good at protecting myself as well and, and discerning who I should be involved with. Okay. But it So talk all to me about that vision. Like, what is it that you're trying to do? My vision is to connect people. Okay. Specific, in Columbus in particular, but all over the world, I want people to come together face-to-face with each other and have real-life community moments. Nothing that's forced, but real community moments that give us an opportunity to engage and get to know each other better on a personal level. Okay. Tell me about some of those projects. I know you did a TEDx talk. Mm-hmm. You commonly speak at colleges. Mm-hmm. You've done some work at charter schools around town. Like, yeah. tell me about just, you know, top project that comes to mind there. Um, the top project that really comes to mind is it, it all goes back to the very beginning with the community work. And people that I knew of from the very beginning that I didn't know, now I'm working with them. Um, like I said, the TEDx, mm-hmm. that came along because of, me being a student at Columbus State. Okay. 
And I didn't even know what a TEDx talk was until somebody said I need to do one. So my very first time submitting to TEDx, not knowing what it was, luckily I was selected. Mm -hmm. And I recognized like, whoa, I think I have a gift. <laughs> I think I have a gift here. Um, and afterwards, I've been invited to multiple schools, mm -hmm. uh, different conferences, just to speak about my vision. And me in particular, it all started off with me talking about growing up as a young African-American male in Columbus and how I feel sometimes we have all of these different initiatives and programs and ideas, but we do not include the people that we're attempting to help, which is young African-American men. And that's the subject of the TEDx talk. Yeah, and that's literally exactly what I talked about. Cool. And I'm going to include with your permission a little portion of that TEDx yeah. talk I'm going to drop it in right here yeah, that's cool. uh, for folks to listen to it is a, the full talk is also linked in the show notes for the episode so here's a quick portion of uh, Dante Wood Spikes at TEDx think of a young black male whose name has been broadcasted all over the media that is not a musician or athlete go ahead Could you please raise your hand if the young black male that you thought of has been killed? That's a problem. The problem that we have is the fact that we only discuss young black males and the problems that they're faced with once they die, which means one of them have to die for the conversation to begin as to how we can help them, which is a contradiction. And sometimes we do have these conversations, but when we have them, everybody is present except for one person the young black male. What we need to do is create an environment where they're comfortable enough to lend us their voices so we can help them the best way possible. Me personally, I knew for a fact when I was younger that absolutely nobody wanted to hear anything I had to say or deal with me, specifically white women. The reason I say that is because in elementary school, in inner cities, it's usually a middle-class white woman that's the teacher in a room full of black kids. And the only time I could interact with her is when everybody would get punished for something a couple of students did, and I couldn't understand why I would get punished for something I didn't do unless you hated me. So in elementary school is when I developed a serious fear of white women. I remember in recess, I would put myself in timeout just so she couldn't do it. I would say to myself, what's the purpose of trying to have fun if I know it's going to be ruined for something that I didn't do? In middle school, I became distant. I would sit way in the back of the class and I wouldn't talk to anybody, so I couldn't develop any social skills. I was more so concerned about not making a teacher angry, but that still didn't work. So once I got to high school, I became very hateful and disrespectful towards every single white woman that I met. It got so bad that I had to get removed from Columbus Public Schools. Once I got to a charter school, I met this white woman. <laughs> I used to try and say things to piss her off, but it wouldn't work. <laughs> I couldn't figure her out. But one day, I got under her skin. <laughs> and she had said to me, Dante, stop bitching and complaining and get off your ass and do what you need to do. You can graduate, you just need to apply yourself. I said, whoa, if it isn't the queen of evil white women. <laughs> but I thought about what she had said to me, and I said, wait a second. At the end of that, she said, I can do it, I just need to apply myself. 
That was the very first time a white woman ever said I could do anything. So I went back to her and I said, you know what, I'm ready to graduate. So with her help, I was able to accumulate two years worth of credits in six months and go on to graduate high school. After that whole experience, I said to myself, hey, white women ain't that evil after all. Hmm. So because of her, she unlocked the student that lied dormant inside of me. So I wanted to honor that. I decided to go to college. One of the first college classes I took was Intro to Sociology. I remember walking in my classroom and um, I looked around. I was the only black person in there and I was like, oh, no. Then I looked at my professor. He was this super professional white guy wearing a tie and I was like, oh. I was like, maybe I'm being a little skeptical. Let me see what this man has to say. So he introduces himself and he was like, I was a police officer and I worked in the court system. Now, if you know anything about young black men, if you are a police officer or you work in the court system, you are not our friend, okay? <laughs> so after that, I, was, I just shut down. I said to myself, I hate you. I hate this class. I'm going to go to the back and I'm going to fail. Peace. <laughs> so I was prepared to do that. One day, we were going over slides. And it was talking about how African-Americans are affected by poverty more than anybody else. And it was describing the characteristic of robbers. And it said that 90% are male, 65% are under the age 25, and 57% are black. This is when all the white people in the class did this to me. I said to myself, wait a second, so the only time y'all can see me is when statistics say I'm going to rob you? <laughs> okay, that's fine. So after that, I went up to my professor and I told him, you know what, I, I really don't like that. And it's other things that are going on in these neighborhoods that they don't know about. And I wish they could see that. So when I told him that, he actually did something about it. Every single time a slide would come up and we would start to discuss African Americans, he would stop and say, hey, Dante. What do you think about that? And I would say what I thought about it. Little did he know, him giving me the opportunity to speak, he was deprogramming me from deciding to be isolated and not speak to anyone and reprogramming me to feel comfortable to speak in, in environments full of people that I usually wouldn't speak to. So after his class was over with, I said, wow, the same exact guy that I perceived to be racist and would probably lock me up for the rest of my life gave me more freedom of speech than anybody else ever has. I guess white guys that are police officers and work with the court system ain't that bad. <laughs> huh. Wow. So I liked him so much that I took way too many of his classes and messed my financial aid up. <laughs> <laughs> And since I couldn't take any more of his classes, we actually started working together. So one of the people that I actually met through him was a pastor that did a lot of ministry in a high crime area. He was this tall, white, skinny old guy. And I remember the very first time we met, we were sitting in a circle and we were all coming up with ways to connect with the community a lot better than what was already going on. So the pastor stands up and he says, there was a shooting the other day. We're gonna pass out cold sodas and we're gonna get to know the people a lot better. I said, whoa, <laughs> you mean to tell me your solution to stopping people from shooting each other is to pass out cold soda? You stupid. 
And then a news crew shows up and they're like, hey, we're here to follow you guys around. And I was like, y'all going to record us passing out cold sodas, the people that could potentially shoot us? Y'all stupid too. So we're walking on the street, and the pastor finds the most dangerous, thuggish group of black guys you could ever find in your life. He just walks up to him, and he goes, <laughs> hey, you guys want to kill Stilda? And I said to myself, like, oh, we about to die. <laughs> but we didn't die. At that moment, I said, wait a second. I see what he's doing. He's not passing out cold soda. This is his way of interacting and breaking the wall down, talking to young black males in a way nobody else could, because most people feared them. And something else I recognized at that moment as well is the fact that I did not like young black males. As he was doing exactly what I wanted people to do for me, I had a problem with it. All I could say was, hey, they're going to get themselves killed anyway. They ain't worth it. They don't respect what you're doing. They're just going to take it and go on about their lives. And then I said to myself, if I can look at them like that, and I never met them, and I'm so sure about what I'm saying, that means that everybody's right when they look at me the same exact way. So you took that talk, and then it has sort of springboarded you to do talks at schools, to sort of be a voice at the table. I know a lot in a lot of the volunteer work that I've been doing recently, I've discovered, you know, a lot of folks want to talk about affordable housing or they want to talk about the opioid crisis. And the biggest point that I've tried to make is like you need a person at the table to who has experienced this or is experiencing this so that you're getting that perspective. Do you feel like that's why you're being asked to have a seat at the table for these things? Yes. And I think what really, really helps is I really have not compromised my image or my ideals for anyone either. Okay. Um, never forced. What does that look like? I mean, is it, has that gotten you into not trouble, but like caused a little tension in some environments? I'll, I'll say I, I know what I look like. Okay. I know what people are thinking as okay. soon as they see me, but usually after I open up my mouth and I be, begin to speak. Are you referencing the fact that you're a yeah. you're a black man? I'm a okay. black man. Okay. I, I dress in urban attire. Okay. I know that I look like the guy on the news that probably committed a crime. I know okay. that. I, I take I take that with me. But the purpose of me doing that is because this is how I dress. This is how I grew up. This is how the people around me dress. This is how I went to school. This is how, how I went to work. Mm -hmm. And this is how I obtained success. And if you want to speak to young black men, in particular ones that look like I do, uh -huh. you have to be able to understand that they have developed their own culture. So you meet them where they are, and then you say, hey, I want to learn about you. What can I help you with? What can we do? Don't say you want to help somebody, but they have to change how they talk. They have to change how they dress they have to change the way they think they have to move away from the neighborhood where they were born right they can't even associate with things they're familiar with anymore so once they change their whole persona and who they are as an individual now you can say hey look we got a black guy at the table well and that goes all, way back to just cultural appropriation of people right. do you feel like those conversations do you get to have those conversations with folks and be like hey all due respect, I don't think you're addressing this the right way. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is, you know, folks don't need to be told to stand up straight and pull up their pants. Folks mm -hmm. need to be told, here are opportunities for right. you. 
And I, I actually do have an opportunity to do that. And like I said, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. a lot of things have happened. And like on social media, I have a pretty decent following of people that every single day they checking in to see what I'm uh, saying or doing. Yeah. And to my knowledge, I didn't know that I had a lot of people watching me. And when I go out places, people are like, oh, Dante, you're Dante, Dante. And I'm like, I am Dante. <laughs> <laughs> my reputation for <laughs> But what that does is open up doors for people to say, you know what, I'm curious as to what it is everyone else sees about this guy mm-hmm. and what it is that he's saying. And opportunities continuously come up where people say, hey, can you speak at this event? Or, hey, can you come to this school? And they don't try to change anything about me. They say, Dante, just show up and say what you usually say. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity to say, I'm not going to code switch. Right. I'm not going to, the, the imposter syndrome, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. It took a while for me to get to this point where people were accepting of it. But once again, like I said, as soon as I open up my mouth and I begin to speak, people know that they have to listen. My, what I look like vanishes. Yeah. And You're hearing what I'm saying now. And you used an interesting term, and I want you to define it in your own words. What, for those that don't know, what is code switching? Code switching is in, code switching is when you go to an environment where people do not speak the way you speak. Mm-hmm. People do not talk the way you talk. People don't dress the way you dress. People don't eat the food that you eat. People don't watch the TV shows you watch. People don't listen to the music that you listen to. Mm-hmm. You have to compromise all of those things just so you can fit in. And so, and so people, you switch yourself a little. That's what code switching is. Yeah. is you switching yourself into the environment that you're part yep. of. Right. And that's how you feel you fit in. And some people have to do this every single day Yeah, when they go to work mm-hmm. or when they, when they, when they are in college or when they're at a place where there is a majority of people that just are nothing like they are. Mm-hmm. So being in a position where I don't have to do that often right. is a beautiful thing because I can get my message across clearly and quickly. Do you fault the people who have to do that in order to sort of fit in? Or do you sort of say like, that's what they got to do to keep, their job or that's what they got to do to keep everything sort of safe some people have to do that because it's a survival tactic yeah if there is no one around me that i grew up with that has a business i have to find somebody that has a business that i can work for right if no one in my family has had a complete education Mm -hmm. when i transition from my neighborhood to a place where their education is provided Mm -hmm. i have to fit in so these people are surviving. The people that do it are surviving. Sometimes there's people where you're like, dude, it's, it's not that serious. You, you're going overboard. Like, you you know you don't talk like that. <laughs> hey, good good morning, everyone. And it's like, bro, I know you don't, 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 don't put that fake voice on. Right. But <laughs> it gives it, some people have absolutely no choice. You mm-hmm. know, when you're trying to feed your kids, when you're trying to feed yourself, when you have a dream that you're, you're trying to accomplish, you literally have a conversation with yourself where you say, for these next four years, I got to put this act on. Mm-hmm. So no one will ask where I came from. So no one will question my, my family and the background or the culture that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible feeling. 
I, it's it's a it's a horrible feeling. I, I think I did it for just like a brief moment. Okay. And I was like, I cannot do this. Okay. I can't do it. So those people are not at fault, but I definitely believe those people should share their experiences mm-hmm. with the upcoming generation of people that have to do that, that yeah. are familiar with the same culture that they come from. Okay. And give them an idea of this is how I survived, but this is what I also know you don't have to compromise or change at all. Right. So as you're saying all this, I'm sort of thinking about the, you know, the occasion that you're here, that you've right. got this documentary coming up. Right. And that you are, you're trying to make people, you're almost an activist more, in my head, you're almost an activist more than you are an artist. Mm-hmm. Like you are a Columbus Makes Art right. artist, but this is a, um, you're trying to bring awareness to people. Yeah. And that's through speaking, that's through filmmaking to an extent, which mm-hmm. is certainly an art form. Yeah. Speaking is certainly an art form. But you're, I've talked to, um, you know, uh, performance poets and uh, actors and on this podcast in the past, you're not doing open mics every no. Tuesday, right? Like, no. you're, that's, that's <laughs> not, you are nah. much more likely to be sitting on a panel at a lunch and learn yep. at a co-working space yep. in Dublin right. than you are to be sitting in the back of a bar doing that kind of thing. Right. How do you? why do you position yourself as an artist or is it just an opportunity that came along and you were like, sure you can use me for this? What happened is I am very, very lucky to start off around established artists. Okay. Um, like some of the artists that I know, um, that are also part of like GCAC, mm-hmm. uh, all over Columbus. You got, uh, Richard Duart Brown. Mm-hmm. You got Scott Woods. Mm-hmm. You got Brian Moss. Mm-hmm. You have Hakeem Collwood. Mm-hmm. Collingwood, I think it's Collin. But <laughs> <laughs> I literally, these people were my friends yeah. before I even knew what was going on. Yeah. And I remember having conversations with each and every person like, dude, you're doing art. You're an artist. Stop saying you're not an artist. I'm like, no, nah, I ain't no artist. I, you know, I just write stuff every now and then. Yeah, I just record stuff every now and then. You're like, mm-hmm. no you're an artist and once again like I said, opportunities just come up and i and was do you feel like you're embracing that or? I, I am now okay i am with this doc this is the very first public documentary that i've done okay and a you've lot of, done other film work like other yeah. video work yes i have okay but this is the first time i said hey everybody I got a documentary. Come and see it. Come and see what I'm doing. And so what's the night of it? That It, it is June 26th okay. from 5.30 to 7.30 at Driving Park Library. Okay, and that's his last words. Talk about the documentary and talk about the, the impetus for it and how it came together. What's very interesting about this documentary is I've actually had this footage for about three to four years. Okay. Just sitting on it. And I really didn't know what to do with it because one, it was it's very personal and it's powerful and it's not easy to look at. Okay. But the whole concept of the documentary, his last words was a moment that I shared with my great uncle that was in his final moments of life. And I thought, you know, it'll be pretty cool to document this and look back on it mm-hmm. and see that this person that is no longer alive had a presence on this earth, mm-hmm. had words to say share moments with us 
And I'm just thinking about the younger kids in the family. Once they grow up, if they have any questions or, or we talking, we sitting what around were things like we're sitting what? around talking about, oh, Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Charles, Uncle Jay, all of this right. stuff. I can actually show them a video of that person. But um, and so is this I've seen the trailer for it. Is this you sitting down with him and saying, tell me everything? Or is it just like. You sitting down with him, turning the camera on, and letting him go. It's a combination. Okay. It's a combination of um, just sitting down, talking to him, mm-hmm. letting him say what he what he's thinking, how he's feeling, and it's also me connecting with my family. Yeah. As well, you know, moments that are precious with them, just sharing about how they grew up because they all lived in New York. Okay. So they lived where my uncle. Jimmy was, but we're in Ohio, so we had to travel. Right. So it's really so is it filmed in New York. What's that? Is it mostly? It was filmed in all of it was filmed in New York. Got it. Okay. All well, of it was filmed when in there's New a York. difficult moment in the trailer where you're listening to your uncle, your great uncle talk. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at a point where mm-hmm. you almost you have to put subtitles on the screen because he's yes. difficult to understand. Yes. Which I, it seems as though you're treating that pretty respectfully, but then quickly you talk to I. think I assume it's your uncle or cousin or brother, mm-hmm. somebody a little bit older than you, and you mm-hmm. say, tell me about your dad and what he did for you. Mm-hmm. And his response yeah. was, well, it's not really about what he did for me. It's about what he didn't do for me. And I was just yeah. like, okay, yeah. that's the kind of film this is going to be. That's that's my cousin, uh, Peanut. Kareem. His name Kareem. Nickname okay. Peanut. You, you know, call you call him, him Peanut, too. Shout out to Peanut. What's good, cousin? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's kind of like a back and forth of visiting my great uncle Jimmy, who was sick. Uh-huh. And my great uncle Charles is his brother. Okay. So he was taking care of my great uncle Jimmy, but he will also transition to going back home. Okay. And where he stays, my um, his children, his family. Mm-hmm. So my cousin Kareem Peanut is his grandson. Okay. So I was talking to him about, you know, tell me about what's going on here in New York with right. the family. Tell me about your father. Tell me about the family. What have I missed out on? Right. What do I not know? Because I'm because you were semi estranged from them yes. before he before you knew he was sick. Yeah. And so what was the you just sort of you heard that he was sick and you were like, OK, this is the last opportunity. So I should go pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I, I, to be 100 percent honest. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. OK. Because I've had multiple opportunities to visit my great uncle. Mm-hmm. I did not do it. I had multiple chances to call my great uncle. I did not do it. What was the reason for that estrangement? Or was it just it's inconvenient or it's difficult or their subject matter I don't want to get into? I think, to be 100% honest, it was just me. Okay. It was 100% me of not taking the initiative to say people are not going to be alive forever. Mm -hmm. And I all of a sudden had this urge to love, to care, to embrace my great uncle, when I know that he's in his last moments, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's unfair. Mm -hmm. That's unrealistic. And it's like I said, this documentary is also like me just slapping myself in the face with my guilt. Okay. I have to address that in the film. Like, do you insert yourself and say, here's how I feel about this? Or do you do it through? I really didn't get to do that. Okay. Um, and like I said, like when I recorded this, I really had no blueprint of how it was going to go. Right. I was just shooting stuff. Well, that's the magic of editing, right? So, yeah, the magic. <laughs> but I was like, I, I have to do something with this. Okay. And unexpectedly, um, like the, I, I made the event for it. 
and a lot of people are supposed to show up. Okay. More than I thought. I'm thinking like, oh, it's going to be about 15 people. Hey, friends, family. But it it looks like seats are pretty much sold out. Okay. Well, and will you put it online after you have the premiere? Definitely. It's definitely going to go up online. I may actually also put this into a film festival. Okay. Um, Last year, I put a documentary into a film festival and unexpectedly it won. Okay. And it, it wasn't even completely finished yet. Okay. So. What was that documentary? That documentary is called Dante and De Mariah. Okay. Me being Dante, De Mariah being a young girl that I mentor. Okay. And as a male, I don't know too much about young girls. And this was an opportunity for me to show everyone like, hey, men can mentor young girls, but also show, hey, I need some help. <laughs> right. <laughs> because okay. she's about to transition into middle school. Yeah. And it's quite a time. I don't know much about young girls. No, I understand. We, you know, me and her, we eat food together. We laugh and joke. Right. But she's about to be at that age where she may have questions. Her feelings are going to change. Mm -hmm. No telling what is going to happen in her life. And I have never been in a position where I had to watch over a young girl Mm -hmm. and help navigate her to the next stage in life. And what was that mentoring relationship? Like what, how did it get started? It started at, like I said, just unexpectedly when I started volunteering at the church. Okay. She was the first kid I developed a relationship with. Okay. And throughout the years, it was kind of off and on, but it was always there. And as time went on, I recognized, Hey, this little girl has been a part of my life for years, mm-hmm. for years this is something serious. And now that she's about to go to middle school, I think I really need to take myself serious as a mentor and say, hey, Dante, you got to kick it up a notch. Mm-hmm. Her environment is going to change. The people she's around is going to change. You also have to be prepared to be a real life mentor, not somebody that just says they're doing it. Right. I can. So I can, was this an act? Because like there's adults there are certainly adults that were in my life when i was you know in middle school and high school um who i consider mentors but it wasn't an active mentoring relationship right right? like they weren't they weren't taking me to coffee i hate that you know two weeks or something i I personally despise that how do you mean i i will let me let me i i despise someone taking the role Okay. And saying, this is my position. This is who I am. Take a selfie with you. Say, oh, yeah, we I'm mentoring this kid. This okay. is my mentor. This is the person I'm playing well, basketball these, The people that I'm talking about, they didn't say I'm Tim's mentor. Okay. They It was sort of like, in hindsight, I'm like, that person was a mentor to me. Got you. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. I'm, 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 think, I'm out like somewhere People else. in my church okay. or got people you, that got you know, got I would be doing community theater with that I'm like, I learned a lot from them. And it was got simply you. from being around them. Okay. So with, and I'm sorry, what's the young woman's name again? Day Mariah. Day Mariah. With Day Mariah, was this something where you were like blocking out time? You sit down and say, what's going on with you? Mm-hmm. How can I help? In the beginning, I was not. Okay. It was just on a, a weekly basis because she would show up to the summer camp. Okay. And, uh, you know, Thursday nights at the church. Mm-hmm. That's when I would see her. But eventually it got to a point where I was like, you know what? Today I want to have lunch with Day Mariah just okay. because. Yeah. And before you knew it, I was having lunch with her every other week. Mm-hmm. And then before you knew it, I was just in the classroom helping her with her schoolwork, 
And then after that, before you knew it, I was picking her up, taking her to different events right. throughout the city. So it just slowly developed into something more than I imagined it would be. Mm-hmm. And as of now, I say, okay, I've established the relationship. Right. Now it's time to really dive into the mentorship. Because okay. as I was just saying, I despise these people. If I'm not careful, I'm going to be just like the people I despise. Okay. By saying, I'm her mentor, I'm her mentor, but what am I giving this little girl? Yeah. What information am I giving her that she can take with her throughout life? How can I prepare her to be okay without me? Mm-hmm. Back to his last words, the documentary that's coming out. What You talked about how you had documented it for sort of maybe other family members or future family members that are like, I want to learn about my history or my family of right. larger. Why is the film, do you think, uh, what's the message in it for those that aren't part of your family? The message in it is I know I'm not the only person that has experienced this okay, or gone through this. So, one, if there is somebody that you care about, that you love, you can reach out to them. Mm-hmm. You can say hi. You can have a moment together. Also, sometimes you can be the person that did not take the opportunity mm-hmm. to reach out to someone. And I want people to think about that part, too. Yeah, because it's easy to say, oh, this person didn't reach out. This person didn't really care. Sometimes that person is you. I was the person in this situation. And if somebody else is that person right now, it's like put whatever to the side that you have that's going on. Any frustration or anger or misunderstandings and reach out because you do not know when that moment will no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Even with people that are still alive some of your friends or family you can reach out to them if you want to sometimes we're stubborn sometimes we just put it off like uh, next week yeah. next week but and sometimes it, somebody's not going to respond and, and right you exa- also got to be careful about the stories that you tell yourself about why that is exactly yeah exactly what else do you what else are you working on right now what else is coming up honestly i'm devoting a lot of time to documenting so i have some different ideas that i would like to do with uh documentaries i I definitely want to document artists in the city okay and i also have a a big idea that I'm, i'm thinking about where i could get everybody in columbus involved because i use my social media as a vehicle mm-hmm. for people to talk to each other and come yeah i was together. gonna say when you mentioned it earlier it's i've only been connected with you on social media for 24 hours yeah. but Seeing the the sort of conversations that you're curating, oh, you, you is saw interesting. that. Yeah. Okay, and this is for my Facebook friends because I always be like, "Why are you asking all these questions? Why are you asking all these questions?" I'm curating <laughs> the conversation. Right. But I'm looking to take these conversations and transition it into events okay. and video. Okay. So giving people a video library. And events that they could come to to actually talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are like, man, your question's so deep. I'm like, that ain't deep. It's just I'm taking a moment to actually say it out loud. Right. Because everyone can comprehend what I'm asking. Yeah. And everyone has their own perceptions and thoughts about it. But I just take the opportunity to say it out loud. And people are like, oh, man, you so deep. I'm like, no, it's not that serious, y'all. But I, I, I do believe that I, I have 
perception. Yeah. And I, I do know how to ask a question that'll get different perceptions, the um, people to share their perception and how they feel and their experiences. Mm-hmm. And also creating a safe space for that. You okay. cannot do this if you do not create a safe space. Okay. That's it's a thin line between that being eye opening and somebody revealing something very personal mm-hmm. and having a life changing moment and a person shutting down and saying, I'm never opening up again. Right. It's so, dang- I mean, it's, uh, it is the definition of vulnerability, right? Exactly. To, to literally open it up literally. and, and share those things. How focused do you think those conversations, how focused, how much do you want to curate that? Because, you can sort of say, hey, we're going to have a like the big table that the right. Columbus Foundation does. Right. They don't really prescribe, here's what you're supposed to be talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's good and that's bad, right? right? Because there's it's good to have people at a table that may not be at a table before right. and to bring up issues. But unless you've sort of got someone curating the conversation, where's that going to go? Right. And also there's a risk there of like sort of competing ideals about here's how to solve mm-hmm. large problems in our community. Got you. And I purposely like the questions that I ask uh-huh. are pure like And they are pretty broad. Pretty philosophical yeah. and gives you an opportunity to say what you want to say. Mm-hmm. It's really not a correct answer. It's more so emotionally driven mm-hmm. or experience driven. Mm-hmm. I stay away from like definite answers or or questions that you know, somebody can go to Google and say, this is the answer. Right. No. It's not true. <laughs> but um, I did six big tables in one day. Okay. At, for the With the Columbus Foundation. And I actually, I did a documentary that I'm going to release. So oh. for now, like after I do this. Glad we came across that. <laughs> I right. did a documentary. I actually document all the conversations we had. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that depending on who is curating, kind of gives the atmosphere a, a vibe and a feeling mm-hmm. where they can say, I trust this person. So I know whatever happens or whatever the conversation will be, I can more so direct it towards them. And okay. it's really not about this other person that's next to me that may have a different idea or vision. Right. I know that we all trust Dante. So obviously I can trust you. Right. But you also have to be good at curating and directing and, and not silencing people. Right. But also directing the conversation and saying, okay, this is what you say. So you did those six big tables all in one day. Right. And there's a link. We won't get into what the big table is. I think we've t- it's, <laughs> it's in the, the Columbus Foundation episode. We'll also link to information in, on it in the show notes. But were those six completely different conversations in terms of subject matter or because you were participating in it, do you feel like it was, oh, we're having six different conversations about race and there's Mm going to be different results. Right. But, and I don't want to pigeonhole you, obviously, that, you know, your art is not storytelling about race, but that is a big part of what you do. Right. Um, Was it six different conversations around race? No. Okay. It was six completely different conversations. Okay. Um, One was about community in general. Okay. As we speak about community, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. The second conversation was about gentrification. Mm-hmm. The third conversation was about mental health. Okay. The fourth conversation was about young black men in Columbus. Because after when I had the big table, the homicide rate record was broken. Yeah. Was and a large portion of them were 
young African-American men. Mm-hmm. The fifth conversation was about the community, um, the, the future of the youth. Okay. The future of the youth in Columbus. And the sixth one was a, actually a social media okay. big table where people that really couldn't go out and um it was be a virtual. part of the, it was a virtual big table conversation. Okay. So that's that was all of the different ones that I well, did. Props to you to be able to just count those off off the top of your head. Oh yeah, I'll take well. my stuff serious. That's man. good. That's good. <laughs> so just to wrap up, tell me about what the other good things you see going on in Columbus. You did a, a little list earlier of some of the artists mm-hmm. uh, that you know and respect. Right. Any other things that you believe that folks should check out mm-hmm. and good stuff going on in Columbus? Uh it's I, what I will say is if you see someone that is an artist in Columbus that is a friend of yours, dive a little bit deeper because you'll find out that they have so much other things that you could support or be a part of. Because I know I have years worth of content that I'm about to start sharing right now. Mm-hmm. So if you live in Columbus and you have a friend that does art, you know what? Just ask them like, hey. How much art do you really have? Or how many videos do you have? Would you be interested in showing them? Can I learn more about Encourage what you're doing? Them. So right. yeah, definitely encourage it's that the life of an artist is depressing sometimes. Yeah, you're working alone, <laughs> It's depressing right? sometimes. Yeah. So I would I, anybody that lives in Columbus, if you have a friend, family member, whoever, just ask, how can I support your art or what art are you doing right now? And that's like that's the best thing I can think of right now. Cool. It's so much stuff going on, and sometimes you don't even know. Yeah, absolutely. You don't even know that people are doing the art. So definitely ask, how can I support? Dante, thank you so much for sitting down today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite speaker. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.